when we're talking about Christmas, the big theological issue that we're dealing with, and we're going to use a theological word, the word is incarnation. If you turn to a dictionary, that means the embodiment of deity or spirit in some earthly form, that God literally has come in our midst, and he's taken on human flesh. And we've been celebrating that. We've been talking about this for a little over a month, looking at from genealogies to Old Testament prophets to the stories of Luke and the stories of Matthew, and looking at how John said, and light has come into the world. And I think we've done a pretty good job of celebrating it, telling the story, taking it in. And practically, God's people during that season, we practice hospitality, we practice generosity, we practice celebration, but what about the rest of the year? Because usually there hits a point where we all show up and we're going, my credit card's maxed out, I'm exhausted, I just want to lay in bed another hour or two. What about the rest of the year? Those who talk about ministry, how do we as God's people minister into the world that we have called use the phrase incarnational ministry. It's one that I like. It means basically as followers of Jesus, we have to live out the incarnation. We literally, those of us who are believers, we become the heart, the mind, the hands, the feet, the voice of God in our community. When our non-believing friends try to understand what God is doing, they understand it by watching and listening to us. I want to do some kind of review our revived vision. And this was created before I came, but it's one of the reasons that our family chose to came. The mission statement online is moving people closer to the heart of God. Our vision statement says this, to imagine a community of front porch people engaging in each other in genuine relationship, a city who gives generously to those in need, embracing a lifestyle of service, filled with households and neighborhoods and laboring together to improve the lives of all within. Families setting their busy schedule for life on purpose, being available to the opportunities and relationship God places them in. People seeking to rediscover the longing God has placed in their hearts for something real, fulfilling and eternal, a city on mission, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, reviving hearts one by one throughout Bismarck and Mandan couple of those. I've sat with these uh, leadership gurus who will try to tell you this is the difference between a mission statement and a vision statement, and this is how you write it out and how you want it to sound. And frankly, most of the gurus would say, this is too much information. It's too long. But you know what? I really don't like listening to the gurus all the time. And I would prefer... Instead of having one or two sentences that say it all, I'd rather have somebody paint a picture for me and say, this is what it should look like. And as I'm reading these words, I think we could come up here if we had an artist in our midst and draw a picture of this. In this picture to me, speaking as me and Jana, it's a captivating one. It's the reason that I, I told you guys, I came home I think it was the first Sunday morning in uh, April of last year and said, hey, Gianna, I have found this church that has a really fascinating vision. 
And uh, we started the conversation, and she was really taken by it until I mentioned Bismarck, North Dakota. It's this type of vision. Our values say we want to accomplish this by building genuine relationships, respond, live out love, reproduce by be on a mission to multiply. But today, I think we're probably looking at one of the smallest numbers that we might see of people sitting in our midst in 2020. I, uh, you guys probably would do it a little different than me, but I looked through our vision statement this week, and I came up with six things that kind of leave me feeling just a little bit tired. I'm just going to mention these, and maybe I should have had PowerPoint, but some things that when we're worn out, because in a few minutes I'm going to get into John and in Philippians. I hope I manage to well. A lot of times when we look at vision statements amongst Christian organizations, there's kind of an idea of trying to get everybody buy into it, keep the motivation going, execute the vision, and if anyone's discouraged, kind of try to prop it up. But I think we all sometimes stop and say, what's really going on? What are my limitations? And I came up with six to our vision statement. One, sometimes our minds run out of bandwidth to creatively dream. Our first statement is imagine. I can't imagine things unless I'm rested well. If I'm constantly doing tasks, there's nothing left in my brain to create. I imagine best if I am away from people, I imagine best if I'm driving between Bismarck and Fargo, even though it's a long distance and nobody else is in the car. I imagine best if I'm out along the river or I'm in a park, and maybe I have one or two trusted friends, but I don't have many people. But our minds literally can't hold all the things that come at us, and if too much comes at us, we run out of bandwidth. We can't create Second, we talked about being a front porch, but a front porch is a piece of property. It's infrastructure, it's woods or brick that sits in front of our home where we meet people. A front porch demands adequate infrastructure. We want to be generous, but sometimes we're financially broke. There's nothing left to give, and we can't even find anything to borrow to give. Fourth, sometimes... And speaking, this is for me one of the hardest ones. When I want to give to someone, when I see something that's going on in a person's life that causes me to feel compassion for them, sometimes as life comes in and I really start to get to know that person, the things that cause me to initially feel compassion, I start to realize that individual's making a lot of really bad choices. And they're doing it time after time after time. And it's their dysfunction that's causing it. And I'm starting to feel like I'm being taken advantage of. Fifth, we want to be about a neighborhood. But in order to function well in a neighborhood, I need to have some neighbors that function well. I need to have community organizations that function well. What if all of my neighbors are really messed up? And everybody who's trying to do something is really messed up, too. Last thing, 
Our calendars are busy. We want to be available for people. But sometimes I've got too many things to do for me to be able to stop every moment of every day and deal with every opportunity. I've just got too many things going. Our calendars are busy. Saying this, I listed six. I bet if I said, let's stop, and we went to the blackboard and I listened to you, we'd probably come up with 30 things and say, yeah, we believe in this vision. This is who we want to be. We want to paint this picture of what Revive is doing in the community. But at times we're worn out and we don't have much to left. left. What do we do when our human limitations are clear? They're abundant. They're overwhelming. I propose, I preach, I teach, I want to encourage you, go back to this idea of the incarnation. That's the point where I think we find the theological or the spiritual roots for dealing with, I'm overwhelmed worn out. I'm going to be in two texts today. John chapter 20, verse 19 to 22, and then I'm going to look at Philippians chapter 2. Both of them are basically going to talk about how do we live out the incarnation? How do we take the Christmas message of God having come and lived in human flesh, and now we as the representatives of Jesus live it out? Let me have you stand. We're going to read John chapter 20, verse 19 to 22. In the evening, on the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Then Jesus came, stood among them, and said to them, Peace to you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his sides. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Please be seated. Just a little context here. We started on Christmas Eve. We read John chapter 1, lit candles, talked about light has come into the world. I hope that most of you are familiar enough with John that you've read it through once and twice in your life. If not, maybe make that one of your projects this week. Go read through John. If you read through John, you're going to see it's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's basically the stories that an apostle who Jesus loves tells to lead us to belief. And it's a little bit unique. As it gets to the end, it has the common story of Jesus dies on a cross. It's an unjust death. And then he rises again. But at the resurrection, for many of us, oh, that's very clear. We believe Jesus was in a grave for three days. And we believe he rose from the dead. And we base our whole lives upon that. When it first happened... People were confused. They were disorientated. Everything that they thought was going to happen had it, and now what's going on? Peter and John, two of the disciples or apostles who Jesus seemed to have a particularly close relationship with, heard that the tomb is empty, and they ran to get there. It seems John got there before Peter, and they went and looked, and they saw the burial cloth. And it was empty, and that was it. 
John says that he and Peter did not understand the scriptures that we're talking about the resurrection. So that's it. They see a little bit of evidence, but they can't put Bible with it, and they're just, what do we do? Mary Magdalene has seen the resurrected Jesus, and when she first saw him, first she thought he was a gardener, and then she realized it's him, and she calls him Rabboni, her teacher. And there's something about how she looks at him with his resurrection body, which reminds him of who Jesus was in the past, but it's different. It's where our lives are going. But she quickly goes and tells his disciples. Now, they're humans. If we were to, just going to write the Gospel of John, wanting it to be good leadership material, we'd say, well, they heard about Mary Magdalene, and then they were all excited. Instead, it says in the text, in the evening of the first day of the week, they're gathering together with the doors locked because of the fear of the Jews. The guys who should have known this better than anybody else are tired, worn out, afraid, confused, and their response is to gather in a little group and lock the doors. They don't know what's coming. What happens? Jesus comes. He stands in their midst. And today, I want us to believe, I want us to know, if we're tired, if we're afraid, Jesus comes and stands in our midst, too. He's with us. He says these words, peace. And when he says peace, I don't think he's telling us that we're going to have an easy, a comfortable life. I don't think he's telling us that we can have a life that's easy to manage, where we can create budgets and plans and we just execute it and it all goes smooth. But I think he's telling us that in circumstances that would make you feel afraid, make you feel confused, make you wrestle with mercy, you can in your heart be at peace. You can be at peace with God. You can be at peace with one another. The things that trouble our spirits, like our sin or our shame, can be forgiven. Our relationships that are broken can be healed. And we can take some time to rest. We can recognize that I can't get it all done, and I just need to sleep in today. I just need to call in sick. I just need to stop and rest, and we can do that. We can be at peace. Then Jesus shows them his hands and his side, which is showing the wounds that killed him where nails were driven through the hand, and the spear went through his side. And I think it's telling us that if we look at our physical bodies, and our hands have calluses, and our bodies have places that have scars, and there have been wounds in our lives, and if it's even not our physical life, but our mental and our emotions are full of wounds and scars, he says, hey, I'm standing in your midst, and I know it's been tough. It's been tough for me, too. I get it. And the second time he says peace. The idea of peace is so important, he repeats it. Then what theologians will call John's commission, as the Father has sent him, I send you. That's our revived vision. That we are to be sent as Jesus was sent. That we're going to have to live through the painful, fearful, disorientating experiences and be sent like him the power of the commission, he breathes on them. It's an earthly manifestation of the Holy Spirit. He's entering their lives. And he speaks, receive the Holy Spirit. I think it's a command. Saying, I'm going to let the Spirit come into my life. And 
Then he says these words that make theologians wrestle. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. We as God's people, in a certain way, and I'm going to try to explain it in a few moments, but I even tell you frankly, if there's any place where I think this is I'm going to do poorly, this one I don't understand. This one, when the sermon's over, if you want to say, Pastor, I think this is a better understanding. I'm certainly willing to listen. In some way, as God's people, we represent his forgiveness. And when we forgive well, somehow it helps us to come to that point of peace, of having some spiritual and emotional wholeness, some bandwidth, so that when life is complicated, we can deal with it. And we can proclaim, God has forgiven you. Now, I think this breaks the cycles of, of shame, of hiddenness, of repetition. To be able to look at someone and say, God's forgiven you. And for them to kind of come to terms and say, yeah, I've done some horrible things. And sometimes when people are on these cycles of doing horrible things, they, they do it, and then they feel really guilty. And the guilt becomes to eat at their soul. And it creates another cycle of pain, and then they do it again trying to escape the pain. And when we recognize and we receive forgiveness, it says, ah, wait a minute, I don't have to live in this pain. It's gone. And it starts to create a new way of looking at things. It helps us get out of this destructive accounting. And we start to even realize if I'm somebody who's thinking, hey, I haven't done all those bad things. Well, God's accounting is we're all sinners before God. It allows us to kind of come to terms with who we all are. We all need his forgiveness. But there's a second portion to it. If you retain the sins of any, they are forgiven. Or they are, excuse me. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. What do we do with this moment where Jesus is saying, hey, it seems there may be circumstances where when the Holy Spirit is in you, you're not supposed to hand out easy forgiveness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about cheap grace. And historically we could say, oh man, there's a lot of awful things that have happened in the history of Christianity when we hand out cheap grace. We may need to say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, commissioned as someone sent, hey, wait a minute. I'm not sure that this issue in your life has been dealt with. I'm not sure that God's forgiveness is as easy to find. There may be some big issues that we need to deal with, we need to talk about, we need to find some way to acknowledge and take responsibility. When I was in Rwanda in the process of working with people trying to heal from the genocide, I once read a phrase written by somebody who was a survivor of genocide, and they said, forgiveness is what politicians talk about when they don't want to deliver justice. And that really stuck with me. I'm going to say that again. Forgiveness is what politicians speak of when they don't want to deliver justice. And I'm not going to give you too many illustrations of that, but I bet you, if you have lived through life, if you've read the history of the world, if you've read the history of North Dakota, if you know your own community, or dysfunction in organizations. You can think of times where that's happened. 
church leaders. Sometimes, you don't have to read the paper many times to find these. I won't give you too many examples, but you can find churches where the leaders have stolen, manipulated, they've sexually exploited members, and then they build systems around them where forgiveness is used instead of a tool to heal. It's used as a weapon to beat and control, to just keep the system going. I think when Jesus is telling us, receive the Holy Spirit, what you forgive others will be forgiven, what you retain, it will be retained, the same as God's people. We have to step into this world. We have to live in the incarnation and represent me. And it's going to be messy, but there's some authority to it. Second text I want to get into today. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. This is us living out the incarnation, being real practical with it. Let me have you guys stand again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave. Take you on the likeness of men, and when he had come as a man in his eternal form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every man. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Please be seated. I'll tell another story. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to ask you guys to hold me accountable for this. Every time that I have moved into a new location and started doing ministry, I usually go through a period where I just love everything about where I'm at. You're seeing me, I love North Dakota right now. Eventually, then you're going to see me come to a point where I can hardly stand North Dakota. We can joke that it'll probably come in February when it's really cold and I want spring to come. I'm going to bet where you're going to see me at the most frustrated point is when you see me realize there's some things that are going on here that are a lot of deliberate choices. And I can tell you that when I've come the closest in other ministry points where I am very difficult to get along with, and I might be hearing God's voice, but I'm also hearing my own ego and my own wounds, it's when I come to the point of going, wait a minute, there's deliberate choices, but I'm not recognizing where I stand. And what has helped me heal from I'm worn out and I'm angry is this text here. So I'm going to kind of give you, okay, here's what you need to know theologically, but practically, this is one that's kept me going. When I was probably at the point of going, okay, I want to get on a plane and I want to leave. I don't want to come back. I want to just be angry. I just want to tell angry stories. This is a put-down-root-and-stay story. Paul is writing to the Philippian church. He is writing from a jail cell. If anyone should be angry when they're writing and sending out an angry email to a church, it should be Paul writing Philippians. But if I were to pull you guys when you came in here and said, what's your favorite book in the Bible? I bet at least a third of you would have said Philippians. And it's because it's a happy one, full of joy. 
That's the message of it. Here's one of the points where Paul says, here's how it happens. One, don't make yourself the hero of the story. Remember that your attitude should be that of Jesus Christ. And keep pointing to him and lifting up his goodness. He should be the hero, and we're, we're flawed, we're failing. Second, don't use God's abundance for your advantage. You know, I think I'm not going to give you an illustration, but you can Google church leaders in America, and you can find out a lot of stuff where this has happened. But for some reason, there's a season of abundance, and you start to use that for your advantage instead of saying this is abundant resources that have to be shared. Jesus doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. And you remember, if you're worn out, you're depleted, you're feeling taken advantage of, Use your power of imagination. Find a way to get away and imagine what it was like to thousands of years ago to be in heaven with all the authority of God and you came and had to live in human flesh. Use that power of imagination and that should cause you to have a big pause. When you do that, you think about all the power that God had and now it's in his son in human flesh. And in human flesh, you've got to deal with human failings. It appears to me when we read the stories of Jesus, there's times where he is tired, there's times where he needs rest. His body ends up being wounded, it needs healing, and we are there too. Our bodies are wounded and tired and need healing. We need to remember that we need to take care of our bodies and rest as Jesus would rest. And we stay obedient to the Lord even to the point that obedience may cost us our life. Lastly, big picture. Remember where this is going. Paul says these words. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God our Father. When Paul is going to write poetically and say you should have the attitude of Christ, he draws back to the story of Jesus dying on the cross. And we need to remember that that is how we have to live and here's the final matter, though. It doesn't end on a cross. It doesn't end in a grave. In fact, it doesn't even end in the resurrection. It ends when Jesus returns again to this earth. And we really don't fully understand that one. There's a lot of debate about it, but I'm convinced of this. God's side wins. We have some type of new body where we're going to be able to look at our old, our new body and see the wounds of it, but we're not limited by wounds. And all of the things that eat at our soul, our failings are washed away, and all is forgiven, and all is new. And all of the injustices of thousands of years of human history are made right. And we're there worshiping God. That's the final matter. And we might think that, well, the biggest thing is what's our church attendance on Sunday or some social concern, a historic vote, or we're going to finally have our front porch. It's a building project. or you know, 
My mom threw great parties. I like to throw parties. I lived in Uganda. Is it a great party? Well, all of those things are not the final matter. The final matter is the Lord's return. And at that point, every knee will bow. And that will be for believers as well as unbelievers. Every name will proclaim Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is the one we submit all things to. And that's going to be everybody who has to say that. Thus today, when we're worn out, when we're tired, when we're broken, I'm going to ask you to remember this idea. Theologians call it incarnation. The Son of God came and lived in our midst, felt all of our pain, all of our frustration, nothing that we have experienced he has not. And he knew how much of the pain that we brought was our own bad choices, the destructive nature of sin in our life. And he chose to live humbly, die for us, knowing that it was our sin. 